Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome to this week's episode or today's episode. Anyway, I'm here again with Ryan. Hi. And we are going to talk about what morals and values to instill in children, which I'm assuming this was Ryan's suggestion and it came out of our previous conversation, I think. And I'm assuming he's asking that because we were having a discussion about what was most important to me in terms of what I wanted the kids to understand and where I wanted them to act from. I think that's where you're coming from, is it? Pretty much, yeah. Um, I think it's it's a good topic of conversation, uh, not just because it's really highlights what we expect of children versus what we expect of adults, but also your particular method of, of mothering and and what you value in in children. So I thought it was a, it was a good springboard for a discussion about everything else, really. What did you think were the most important things that I instilled in you or that I held dear or whatever, however you want to put it? Well, first and foremost, um, respect, I think, is a really, really big one for our family in, in particular and also outside of the family. So a lot of the arguments, I think, that we had, and I say arguments, but loud discussions is probably the best way to put them because argument actually requires you to um, have something to say. But a lot of them were about, you know, how we would treat one another and whether or not it was with respect. And I've seen families, just going to put that one out there, this is not, I've seen how families treat one another and there's very little sense to it. And when you're arguing with someone in your family, there's a lot of below-the-belt punches and all that kind of stuff that goes on. It's not a very respectful relationship because, you know, speaking socially, you're stuck with one another. You don't have much of a, a choice there. You know, with your friends, you have to treat them with a modicum of respect because if they decide they hate you, they're going to leave your life forever. And that's bad. We don't want that. But your family is stuck with you. So that you're allowed basically to say whatever you want to the people in your family, which is, you know, an interesting dynamic to say the least. And, and so from, from the very beginning, I think, you were very clear that we were to treat you and our siblings and ourselves and the world around us with respect. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because one of the family members came over to stay one particular time and I think two of you were arguing and I could have been you and Kira. don't know why I'd think that, but, you know, could have been that. And I'd had this conversation with you, the two of you, i.e. you both got yelled at and sent to your rooms individually. Mm-hmm. And I was saying to the two of you, it is not acceptable for you to behave like that. You do not treat anybody like that. And the family member that was staying with me said afterwards, but they're siblings, what do you expect? And that seems to be the general rule of thumb. If you're siblings, you can behave any way you like. And to me, and I said at the time, no, 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 not acceptable. If they wouldn't treat a stranger like that, why would they want to treat their sibling like that? Mm. So that respect thing was, oh, yeah, I was all over respect. 
<laughs> it was it was pretty big. I mean, and that kind of their siblings. What do you expect? It really strikes me as being along the same line as boys will be boys, which you were always against as well. <laughs> um, because I think not just because of the respect thing, but uh, which leads me to one of the second values. And I, I struggle to have a single word for it, but I always think of something that you said to me once, which was comfort is the death of ambition, which I've always remembered. You've always hated us being comfortable. If we look too comfortable, you give us something to do. doesn't matter what it was. We had to be challenged doing something. Um, and often, honestly, our siblings were challenging us. So you didn't really need to do anything other than force us all into a room, which is fair. It's very fair. Social dynamics for kids are very, very important. But um, if we were on our own on the couch, you know, doing nothing, reading a book, watching telly, you, the, the, there's something wrong in the world. No, no, they've got to do something. They push them outside, make them do the dishes, something. Comfort is the death of ambition, which is, I think, it's a difficult one to put into a word because I could say productivity, but that makes you sound like a conveyor belt. What's your spin on that? How would, what's it's your more, perspective on that? It's um, constant learning, constant mm. growing. That is really important to me that you're constantly expanding who you are and mm -hmm. what you're capable of doing. And I mean, look at the four of you now. Even when you were really little, I would never do that. I'm bored. Really. <laughs> and it's something that I reflect on nowadays as well. A lot of my contemporaries, I'll say, because, you know, I do a lot of acting. And for acting, you are not, it's not, it's not like a lot of other industries because acting requires a lot of different people to be in it. You can't be uniform, really, unless it's a really specific production. And even then, like that, that doesn't come up very often. So you're always pushed in with people of different generations and different socioeconomic backgrounds. And it's really interesting because of that. I've noticed about my contemporaries that there's a big kind of attitude about you go to work and you come home and you play video games and rinse and repeat. Um, which is fine. I'm not knocking that if that's what you want to do. I could not do that. TV gets really, really boring for me very, very quickly. Um, for instance, we were just in a massive worldwide pandemic. You might have missed it, listener, you know, being busy. We, every, that happens occasionally. But it forced me to be inside for pretty much 18 months. And it was just the worst because I've got a set number of books in this house and I read them all very, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you go and you watch a bit of telly while you're doing other stuff, which is what I, I put it on for the you know background noise. Uh, you know, put on some some tutorials. You know, listen to a couple of podcasts, maybe, and and that gets really really boring as well. The only thing that I find really uh, stimulates me is is other people. You know, what I was saying before about you would stick us all into a room because siblings are stimulation enough. We force each other to grow and learn. Um, you were always very big on your other growing or you're dying there's another word for stagnating you're stagnating, stagnating. Mm. Mm. growing or stagnating that was a that was a big that, that was repeated often in our household you're either growing or you're stagnating what are you doing ryan well i'm, I'm having a nap no no you're either growing or stagnating what are you doing ryan <laughs> The other one that was actually really important for me when you were growing up, and you'll remember this really clearly, was if you all started arguing over something, I'd say, if you can't figure it out for yourselves, I'll take it off you. And I did on several occasions where you learned very quickly to negotiate. Mm, yep, the old Solomon problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
yes, we had quite a few arguments that, that ended in no one got it, basically. I wouldn't say, actually, negotiation is probably the best way to put it. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean fairness. Um, no, because as, as you, we mentioned in the last podcast, there's, a, there's an age gap of nine years between Keely, the youngest, and Jamie, the oldest. I mean, even there's even an eight-year gap between me and Keely. Uh, Jamie and I are probably the closest in age and, and abilities at any one time, or were until we reached adulthood. And um, there's a bit of a, an imbalance there. I'm very much of an imbalance in a lot of ways. So the boys, I look back, we, we got what we wanted quite a lot of the time. But the girls learned how to, one, how to deal with disappointment. Mm. And you two had to learn to deal with the girls' upset afterwards, which after a while got to the two of you. So while you might have got your own way in the short term, in the long term, the girls made your life hell. But they did. They, it has to be noted. They were not, I was going to say they were not victims. They absolutely were victims. But it was not like, they, it's not that they didn't get their own back. <laughs> they absolutely yep. did. Um, but and it was that cool. dynamic that you. I was really keen on you all having the ability to work in any social situation, to see the consequences of actions and behaviours. Mm-hmm. So you might get short-term gain, in inverted commas, but an hour later you're going to be paying for it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why it's good that there were four of us as mm-hmm. well because there were there were you know, some, some gender differences there as well, which affected perspective on a lot of issues. But it's true that, like, we had the boys and the girls, but the boys did not always agree and the girls did not always agree. And so, you know, we, I have relationships with my brother and with my two sisters and each of them is absolutely individual. And when we were arguing about what we should do on a movie night, everyone has that discussion. You have a family moving out. What a wonderful idea. You get all the snacks out, you get the couches set up, you get your blankets. All right, what are we going to watch? And you spend a solid 45, 60 minutes arguing about what movie you're supposed to watch. It gave us a very analytical perspective, I think, doing that. I remember once um, when we were arguing about music, Jamie and I went through and took a tally of everyone's preferences in particular songs in order to find out the average most liked song was and the results were really really interesting because all obviously our top choices were never the same everyone had a different top top choice of song you know dad has david bowie you know at the time the girls were liking high five and adele adele yeah and then you know jamie and i had different ones he had robbie williams but the one that was like the most liked was a classical song called lost man was um, which is I think was it, it, it taught us that sometimes democracy gets you a candidate, not because he's well-liked, but because he's not hated. Uh, it was a very important insight into, into politics. For me, anyway, I think I got that lesson. I don't know if the others got that lesson. I think Jamie might have gotten that lesson, seeing as he went into political science. But, um, but yeah, so I think that, that growth was important, which I think leads me to the third one. I learned perspective as a value, I think. Um, perspective in what regard? Perspective, like uh, when I s- say perspective, I mean um, like an appreciation of how much my view of the world is true and how much is 
uh, a construct, if you will. It's a view of my own importance in the world, which is not necessarily to say that I'm not important in the world. It's, it's a precise understanding of exactly how much of a difference I can make and therefore what a responsibility I have to make a difference. It makes me think of, um, in particular, Nepal. He's mentioned Nepal in the last one. I went to Nepal with Dad when I was 14 uh, and went to Kathmandu, which was absolutely just incredible. Uh, for those of you who haven't gone, it's um, a metropolis unlike anything I've ever seen. And it stinks to high heaven, absolutely smells. It's just, it's like being hit in the face with a truck filled with perfume. They're not necessarily all nice perfumes either. But it was a city full of poor people. And by poor people, I don't necessarily mean like, oh, these people are poor, I hate them. I mean, everyone lived with less in a year than I was used to in a day. And I had a, suddenly had a perspective, not on just how privileged I was in our own society, and I very much was, but how privileged we as a society are compared to other societies in the world. And that kind of shook. Uh, every child sees the world, I think, when they're really, really young. And I've mentioned this in other things as one of two things. They're either verbs or nouns. You do something with them or they just exist. Uh, for instance, food is a verb. You can eat it. Uh, rocks are a noun. And then again, sometimes rocks are for throwing and they become a verb. You know, that's the kind of dynamic we're talking about here. And when kids are really, really young, people are nouns, right? They're just there. They're part of the furniture, like a tree. You just have to kind of put up with them. They don't really realize that they're people as rich and textured and insightful as your own. It's like being reminded that every time you watch someone, they're watching you right back. Kids don't get that until a certain age. When you start being a teenager, you start to realize. Uh, and then you make another category, which is like, you know, verbs and nouns and people, names. It reminded me of that. Because it's that, that people lesson, I think, is one that all of us need to learn occasionally. We often forget how much of a perspective other people have. Empathy exists for just that reason. And I'm sure we all know people who just don't have any empathy. They just don't have it. There's none of it there. Right? <laughs> Sometimes it's inbuilt. They can't help it. But they just don't have any empathy. And perspective really helped me with that. Because I noticed when I was a kid, empathy was not really high on my list. I understood it. I got it, like, intellectually, but it's not the same as feeling it, you know. So when I say perspective, I mean an insight onto my place and importance in the universe. How big or how small that might well, be. Well, I never intended to give you that one. The well, one you that... did. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. The one that, that, we, that is actually important to me, and it kind of comes in there but also not, is... Um, Putting yourself in other people's shoes, being able to see things from another person's point of view, that was really important that you all understood that. And you all do in different ways. But, yeah, it's interesting that that was how it came out for you because I think that's how that particular value, how you've taken it on. It's, I think everyone reacts to, and this is a completely different conversation, but we will go into it very briefly. I think everyone reacts to it differently. Because empathy, the idea that uh, there's a word, sonda. Sonda is the realisation when you're, for instance, when you're driving down the street at night and you pass 
a window and there's a light one. And suddenly you can see inside the window that someone's having a family dinner and they're talking about something. And you realize that the people that you pass in the street that you've never given any thought have a life that is as rich and textured and varied as your own. There's a whole world there that is every bit as important as yours that you've never touched. The word is sonder. I recommend using it at every available opportunity. Everyone reacts to that differently. And I think we need to be reminded of it fairly regularly because that is huge, that realisation. It's, it's big. It's almost too big to keep in your brain at any one time. Like a lot of the, the things that we have in our brain, like prejudices and uh, mental shortcuts, are just there to help us process the sheer enormity of how much information we're surrounded by at any one time. This is one of those things. And so everyone has their own mental shortcut to understand what empathy is. I'm an actor. I act. I have a really specific idea of how people exist and who we choose to be and how our relationship to other people forms a story that is bigger than all of us. It's, it's viewed through that lens. I'm sure my brother, you know, who, who views everything through a historical and political lens, would give you a very, very different perspective onto that. And, you know, my two sisters would as well. Everyone, everyone deals with it differently. So that lesson, which is empathy, I think is certainly one of the harder lessons. It's like we were talking about, uh, about making decisions. That's absolutely a consequential decision. That's a really, really tough one. How do you deal with people when they have such a big, you know, varied world of their own? Everyone reacts to it in a different, different way. So that lesson you taught isn't necessarily what we took away from it, but we did take something away from it. It's just it, each, it had a flavour, each to our own. That was, that was different because of that. Mm. And then leading on from that, building on from that, was a point you made in the last conversation, which was I never taught you kindness. I always taught you compassion. Two different things. I have a couple of friends who are getting out of relationships or familial dynamics they've had for a really long time that I personally consider to be, I mean, toxic's a strong word, but I would consider to be very restrictive. And one of the things that I've noticed most often is that when something bad happens, they expect a lot of sympathy. I don't know sympathy. No, I have inherited from you a complete lack of sympathy. Well, not complete. It's not complete in either of us. But sympathy lasts for about five seconds, and then you're like, all right, moving on. Um, you know, they'll come and they'll say, oh, you know, this, this thing happened to me today. And if it's bad, you'll be like, oh, that's, you know, that sucks. What can I do? <laughs> you know? How can I help? That moment, that's all the sympathy you're going to get. We're going to put that in a cupboard and we're going to move on. I don't want to sit for several hours and tell you how bad your life is. I mean, part, quite apart from anything else, that's intensely boring. Don't have time for that in my schedule. Sorry, guys. But you you were always very clear on that as well. We we come to you with a boo-boo and you'd say, all right, um, we're going to bandage that up. And then we'd be like, it hurts. You'd be like, ah, all right, moving on. <laughs> Because, you know, <laughs> if it really, really hurts, you can take medicine for it. If it doesn't hurt that much, you can put up with it. Either way, the world is going to turn, the sun is going to rise, and you're going to have to get on with your day eventually. Uh, it was very... That's really harsh. How did it come across? I honestly, it felt a bit harsh, harsh sometimes. Um, however, <laughs> I understand it better as, as an adult. And I certainly, like, 
I, I resented it when I was a kid. But in fairness, I think kids resent everything at some point because the world, they I have to realize at some point that the world doesn't revolve around them. And the sympathy thing is really kind of one of those, those cruxes. It's really one of the, the, the crucibles where you realize just how important you are in the whole state of the world. I mean, how, how, how many times do you have to go to the hospital with us? Um, countless, dozens of times, dozens of times. We are all magnets for absolute disaster. That much has not changed. We are all still absolute magnets um, but for terrible things happening. Uh, I think drama in particular, yeah, drama, drama queens, drama queens is, is a strong word, but we're surrounded by drama. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and you go to the hospital and all the nurses would be like, oh, poor lambs, you know, are you okay? Do you want another blanket? We'd be like, yes, please. At last someone cares. And we'd all look at you <laughs> and you'd, you'd be there reading a book or something. He said, I brought you here. You know, I bandaged you up. You know, I gave you some water. <laughs> Why are you being so ungrateful? We'd be like, we just want more sympathy, mum. <laughs> yeah. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do sympathy. No, don't do wallowing. I think that's what it is for me. Like, I'll get I it. I get it. That's what it is, yeah. Um, and when I've got it, it's like, okay, I've got it now. Now we need to move along. <laughs> I think, and that's the thing. Like, sympathy is, is all about uh, an immediate problem being brought out and made into a long-term problem. But I think if any one of you, any one of us, went to you and said, you know, I'm re- I've been really struggling with this for a while and I don't know how to fix this problem and it's making me feel really down and I really want your help with it, you would not hesitate to take that really, really seriously. But I think also you're not asking for sympathy in that. You're asking for, for empathy, sure. But sympathy... Support. Yeah, support. Yeah. Um, sympathy um, means that you can't help. And actually, yeah, it is, isn't it? Sympathy is being a victim mm. and being helpless. And it's helpless. like mm. I always get <laughs> the upset or whatever's going on, the pain or whatever. I got it. I, I got it. You know, I listened, but you're not a victim and no. you're not helpless. You mm. might need support and you might need somebody to say, okay, this is what you need to do next. Let's go over there. Or I might need to run you down to the hospital and get your stitches in whichever part of your body you've put through the latest window or hit the wall with. Mm. But, yeah, no, no, no sympathy. It's like a consequence. That's the consequence, it's, darling. It's, uh, here's, here's another perspective from an actor. One of the, the things that we say most often on stage is you have to evoke emotion from your audience. You can't tell your audience what to feel. Uh, right. So recently, for instance, I was in a play where a young man um, in 1915, he's 18, decides that all he wants to do in the world is go off to Gallipoli and fight with his friends and, you know, free the world from the Nazi, no, not the Nazi, that the, the, the vile Hun, whatever it was they were, you know, against. And, um, and you've got two choices there. You can make him really, really sad at the end, you know, really serious and sad throughout all of it, um, you know, except for the big bit about, you know, I want to go off to the war and have everyone else be sad. Or you can have him be really, really, really cheerful right up until the very end, right? And one of those things is going to be much more potent in evoking a reaction from your audience because someone who's cheerful and goes, Cheerfully choosing into death, know that it, knowing that it's terrible and choosing to be happy about it is going to make your audience really, really sad. <laughs> but if he's sad, there's already enough sadness here. 
need to do that. He's already set. He's got that covered. We don't need to do that. There's a fun little kind of emotional trick where we fill a void of emotion with what we think is most important. If there's enough happiness in it, we fill it with sadness. That's why comedy always makes tragedy feel the worst. This brings me back around to sympathy. Um, sympathy is not an evoke, evoking emotion. If you, for instance, if I remember when, when I was really, really small, we were digging in the sandpit and there was a big concrete square block. I probably remember it being a lot bigger than it was because I was about seven at the time. It fell down my shin and scraped the skin off the front of my shin, right? It was awful. <laughs> I still remember the pain. Um, I can't even remember what it looked like. It may not have been as bad as I remember it being, but um, I don't remember it holding me up for too long. And I imagine that when you're seven, you know, you're going to cry about that a little bit. And you're going to be sore. But the following day, when I go to school, I'm going to try and run around with my friends and have a little bit of a limp, but I'm going to try and have fun. That is going to evoke sympathy. <laughs> me crying about it is not necessarily going to evoke sympathy. Is this... Do we see the difference between these two pictures? Yeah, and the other thing that was coming up for me as you were talking is sympathy is stagnating. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. you see, listen, we're coming back full circle. All these, yeah. all these, all these lessons, they interconnect. <laughs> it, it is. It's not a growing thing. Uh, it assumes that the best thing that you can do is feel bad, mm. and, which, and just wallow yeah. in it. It's just yeah. wallow. Stop wallowing. And, and I have to say, if you're in a place where the only thing that you can do is feel bad, honestly, might as well lay down and die. I'm, I'm an actor. I get to choose how I feel, really. Or at least I get to choose how I seem like I feel. At least you can choose to put on a brave face. And, and if you're not doing that, then why would anyone help you? Mm. But I suppose it comes back to there is a point where you offload, you offload and the person you're talking to, like if you were talking to me, I would get it. Mm. Or if I was talking to you and, you know, I was going, oh, here's the big long litany of stuff that's gone wrong in my life lately. Mm-hmm. You'd get it and mm-hmm. you'd sympathise, you'd get it. And then you'd be like, you would say, like you said at the start of this, what do you want me to do? How can mm-hmm. I help? What support do you need? How can we move this forward? So be questions constantly. So it's not like you ignore it or you disregard it or you play it down. You actually get what that person has experienced. And in that getting it, unless you're like 10 or 8, when the person you're talking to gets it, it actually releases something and allows the person to move forwards. You're not ignoring it or disregarding it or anything. You've got to get it and fully get it. Yeah. I, I should clarify that that is true. Uh, and when you feel sad, you do need to deal with that. That It is a process. You, you can't just, you know, pretend to be happy and make everything all right. It's choosing to stay sad. So, like, there are, there are methods of dealing with that, of, of dealing with how sad you are. And offloading is, is the most common one, honestly. That's how, that's how most people deal with it. Um, you know, you put on a show, you, you cry. That's, that's, a big, that's a big way of dealing with it. Uh, when I was at university, we dealt with stress by doing what we called the cosmic egg, which is where you curl up into a ball on the floor and cry. That's how you deal with it, right? And you stay down there for and long enough that you start to feel a little bit ridiculous, and then you know that you're going to be okay, and you'll, you know, and you'll move on from that. But 
<laughs> I don't know how well I'm illustrating my point here, but the, the, the purpose of this is to say that if you if your aim is to evoke sympathy and not to have a process, if you're if you're saying, okay, I, I I'm feeling bad, what I want to do is, is make other feel be, other people feel bad with me. It's not gonna help. You know, if you say, okay, I need to get this out of my system, can you listen? Great. One of the first things you taught us, probably not meaning to, but I think we all picked it up, is when someone's having a big problem, the first thing you do is say, would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> yes, I would like a cup of tea. Thank you. <laughs> it's the first gift. It's, and it's more than that. It's, I think it's, it's, it's a symbolic show that things can get better and that other people can help in a really, really small way. You don't need to take the entire burden of the pain of having a concrete slab falling on someone else's shin. You don't, you don't need to. They will heal on their own. It's going to hurt. But there's nothing that either of you can do to change that. What you can do is still be people with them and remind them that even though this bad thing is happening, you, you can get through it and not alone. You can give them a cup of tea. You can talk. You can you know, exist in a, in, a, in a world in which the pain won't go on forever. Sorry, I'm having a flashback here. Do you remember, do you remember that time Keely put her knee through the window when she fell off a bed, when she was doing trampolines on a bed? When we were moving out of that house, that was like the last day we had there and she was bump, bouncing on the bed and fell onto the floor and put her leg through the window. Do I remember that? Was I in the room for that? Yes, I was. Got fabulous things. scar. Anyway, <laughs> she had about nine or ten stitches in her knee, and one of her best friend's mums was a doctor. Mm. So the mum had said to me, "Oh, don't bother taking her down to the hospital to get the stitches out. I'll come. Give me a call. I'll come round. We'll have a cup of tea, <laughs> cup of tea, and um, and I'll take the stitches out." And I remember Keely sitting there, and as Michelle went to cut the first thing Keely started howling like full-on sobbing and I'm looking at her Michelle hadn't even touched the stitch with the scissors and Keely was going and my reaction and I'm just thinking this through then was Keely pack it in (laughs) (laughs) and that was my response to everything I got it it's scary don't even think about it and it was more about pulling you away from that fear and that upset and, and giving you a different path to go along. Because your dad would say, breaking that pattern. Your dad's always keen on, let's break the pattern of that one. You know, it's a little bit painful, but it's not sob-worthy. Get a grip. Yeah, I, I, I've been in my fair, fair share of injuries. You know, I, I, I felt quite a bit of pain. And honestly, pain space pretty bad. But it's not, I think in most cases, What's worse is the is the isolation of it. It's very isolating. You feel very alone and very hopeless, and that's the worst part of it. And and there are several ways of, of dealing with that. And one of them is just to be like, you're a human being. Wake up. Switch your brain on. This is the deep part of the brain, the animal part of the brain. Turn on the the higher functioning centers. You know, you know. Look at these stitches. They've used actual cotton. To, to stitch you together. Isn't that ridiculous? I think in a, in a lot of ways, particularly with, with traumatic stuff and, and the injuries that we had, that was a pretty good way of dealing with that <laughs> because um, people panic. 
um, people panic when when that kind of thing happens. I remember when um, I did I did my this scar here. I hit a I hit a playground bar. I was ducking. I'm glad I did because it's right there. And if I hadn't, it would have hit on my nose and broken that spectacularly. But anyway, it split open. There was blood everywhere, and Jamie and his friend were like, "Okay, he's crying. There's a bit of blood. We're going to go and walk slowly to." the general vicinity of, you know, where the, the adults are some 500 metres away. And I lay there for a while, had a bit of a cry. Lasted about 30 seconds, if I remember correctly. Not very long. And then I was like, all right, no one's coming. Guess I'll stand up. <laughs> and then Keely came up to me, actually. And Keely must have been five at the time. She was like, there's blood everywhere. And I was like, yeah, right, cool, huh? She was like, do you want to hold my hand? And I was like, absolutely, I do. <laughs> I do want to hold your hand. And I had to lean forward because there's blood coming everywhere. You know what happy wounds are like? Blood everywhere. And then I, I, I found out later that, that Jamie and his friend had gone into you and been like, oh, Ryan's got a blood nose. <laughs> and then he came out and I looked like a horror show. <laughs> um, like, where, is, where do you think the nose is on your face? Because that's not it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it wasn't, but yeah, I think it, <laughs> but I think it, that was, that was interesting. I don't blame them for that because everyone reacts differently to stress. And one of the ways is to just glance at it and then look away. And if you get the wrong idea from that, then you're not much help in that situation as, as he was not much help in that situation. People cry and whimper a lot. I find when they're injured around other people, when you're not injured, around other people when sorry when you are injured and you're not around other people you don't waste time crying you just don't there's you no still audience. hurt yeah there's no audience there i remember when i i did i did this scar on a couch and uh, there was blood everywhere and we had then jamie was there and then a babysitter was there because you guys you and dad were out for dinner and it was another couple of hours before you came back i think and uh, this was a long time ago. And then you came back and I burst into tears. And it was like, he was fine before you rocked up. And, and I remember you saying really specifically, I remember it to this day. It was, be and you said, because no one actually cared until I rocked up. Did I? I remember it really specifically because I was like, yeah, Jamie, <laughs> no one cares about me. Take that. <laughs> And even then, I don't think I cried for very long after that. And, you know, it, you just, you gotta, sometimes you do have to get it out of your system. That's what the crying is. You, you, you just need to release it. It's a pressure valve. You need to let it go. And then that's good. But um, sitting around, wallowing in it is, is, is not growth. It's, it's, it's stagnation. Hmm. I think we got a bit far off the original topic. Again. We did, didn't we? Values. Mm. Values, values. So what values are we had? The other, so we got, what did we get? Respect. 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 Perspective was the second one, which is kind of getting into other people's shoes for me, empathy. or empathy. Yeah. And then there is personal growth. Personal Let's growth. Stagnate. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of the next one, to be honest with you. What, was, mm-hmm. what do you think it is? Oh, compassion you... we were going to talk about. I mean, that's kind yeah. of in with the empathy. empathy. I think that's one of the things that you made quite clear to us, I find, is kindness, compassion, generosity, don't stand on their own. Mm. They are a function of empathy. I think you were really clear about giving someone something 
to make you feel better isn't necessarily going to help anything. You need to understand where they're at. Because if you, if you do understand where people are at, if you really, really get it, then you will be kind. You can't help but be kind. There's an old saying about um, if you know everything there is to know about a single person, you won't be able to help but love them. And I, I think that's, that's, that's very true. You can't help them. You might not necessarily like them, but you won't be able to help but love them, uh, to care for them. And I think that's the, that's the same thing. I always have a problem with kindness because I see kindness as being used Sometimes I am so digging a hole for myself here, but anyway, I'm going to say it. I see kindness as an excuse not to set boundaries, not to pull people up for something they've done that isn't appropriate and not to give people, to avoid confrontation as well. And it ties in with that not getting sympathy because there was always a compassion. I'm always compassionate, but that doesn't mean I'm always nice to you. And it doesn't, it means that sometimes I look like I'm really unkind. That's not the intent. My intent is to make you grow and keep you moving and give you whatever support you need. And I remember somebody saying to me one time, I I can't remember what I'd said, just something like we're talking about right now. And she said to me, she said, you are the, your ruthless compassion incarnate. And that's, and I just, I thought about it and I went, yeah, you know what? Yeah, you will always get what you need, regardless of whether you think it's kind or right, or I'm not showing anything, any sympathy, you'll get what you need. Like it or lump it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's actually it's a topic of conversation between me and Joe ongoing. Uh, my, my, my darling wife, Joe, is a very kind person. Oh, she, um, she's a sweetheart. She absolutely is. She's a Hufflepuff to her core, and we love yes. her very, yeah. very dearly. And I'm a Slytherin. She, <laughs> <laughs> she struggles with doing something that will make someone uncomfortable or unhappy if it will make them happy later. So, for instance, you know, we've, we've lived with a variety of housemates over the years. And in one case, one of our housemates was getting very unhappy, right? And she wasn't putting things away and, you know, she wasn't, she was being less tidy and all those kind of other things that mean that, that someone is, is very unhappy and is just kind of, you know, going into a spiral, not looking after herself or the people around her or the, the her surroundings, right? And so the kind thing to do, the immediate kind thing to do is to tell her that everything's all right and that we can handle it while she looks after herself, which is what Joe did, right? The long-term kind thing to do, which is what I did, I think, was sit her down and say, okay, look, I know that you're struggling. This can't continue, right? You still got to be a person. I want you to talk with me right now about what you're going through. Because the more you isolate yourself, the worse this is going to get. And it's not going to be fun. None, neither of us is going to have fun here, but I have made us a pot of tea. So we've got that going for us, right? Open your mouth and talk. And we, so we've talked a lot about the difference between short-term kindness and long-term kindness, I think. Um, you're a great believer in long-term kindness, I think, which is a little bit of pain now will make things better. If not all the time, obviously. But I would rather do something it could hurt now if it's going to help long term 
we're still really struggles with that, <laughs> you know. And I think that's the that's the traditional idea of kindness is what is what Joe does. Um, but I have to say, she she claims to be very envious of my ability to to just toughen up and have a hard conversation with someone that will make them unhappy because long term, most of the time, they do thank me. Not all the time. Some people think I'm a pretentious prick. But hey, you can't win everyone, can you? What can you do? So I think that's that reminds me of what you're talking about, about ruthless compassion. Sometimes what people want in the immediate state is what the animal brain wants. You know, when a cat's injured, it will find the nearest dark corner away from everyone and lick its wounds. It will, you know, it does not want to see you. It does not want you nearby. It does not want to be petted. It does not want food. Leave it alone. And people do the same thing when they're in fight or flight. They want to be left alone. But we are awkward creatures stuck between animals and angels. We can't be left alone because that pulls us further and further towards the animal side. We need to be reminded, I think, a lot that we have a responsibility because we exist. And um, and that's where that kind of, that form of, of compassion comes from, which is why I like, yeah, like the word empathy rather than kindness. Yeah, empathy absolutely. And it, it's also about, it is taking a long-term view for me personally. There's nothing wrong with what Joe does. Like I'm not criticising Joe here. But you are not what you're going through now. So I'm not going to talk to you as though that is who you are because that's not who you are. So I always come from it from who I know you to be, not your circumstances right now. And I think that's the basic difference for me. That's where I always come from. Yeah, got it. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're going through a rough one. How can I help you get back to where you are? Yeah, yeah. Um and, and and that's that's the thing. Like neither one of these methods, I think, is is better than the other. I think Joe and I are stronger because we're both good at it. Because the downside of mine is people don't necessarily immediately come to me when they have problems. They do immediately go to Joe, and she swaddles them in a blanket and gives them a cup of tea and pushes them gently but firmly in my direction, which really really works. You've got to have both sides of it I think uh, everything in moderation <laughs> everything in moderation I know that uh, I can quite often be a little bit too callous is the wrong word I think I move through topics a little bit too quickly for people especially emotional topics you know I'll be like it's like we were saying okay you're feeling really bad I absolutely get that how can I help um, sometimes word for word exactly what I say, which is a little bit too fast for a lot of people because they do want to, to just to vent at someone, which is great. I understand that, but I'm not great at being vented at. I desperately want to do something. And I, I, I find it very tough to sit down and just be vented at, even though I know that a lot of the time, you know, that's what people need to do. They just need to get the emotion out because while people talk, they process what they're feeling as they talk. So by the end of the talk, they're like, okay, I've reached the point where I've, I've thought this through and I'm ready to actually start working on it. Whereas I, I interrupt a lot <laughs> with suggestions and thoughts and, and it's uh, it's not as helpful as I would like it to be. So that's... Um, no, because you try and fix people. Because I try to fix people. I, try to, I want to desperately try to fix 
problems and people and, and, and change the world. But sometimes you just got to let people fix themselves. You cannot help someone who doesn't want help. And the same is really you can't help someone who's not ready for help, um, which is a really hard lesson that everyone has to learn in their 18 to 25 period, I think. Oh, I don't know. I think it's I've, over the last 10 years in particular, I've really tried to move away from the fixing people. So mm. quite often I'll just go, yeah, I got it. Is there anything <laughs> I can do? All right. <laughs> I, I struggle with it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I do str- and I, I think eventually I will probably come to the same conclusion, but I'm young and idealistic and, and have not yet encountered enough people who I think are unchangeable to. <laughs> I'm just looking at the time. We've been talking for 50 minutes again, dude. I know. Sh- should we wrap up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we got four. I think five is a nice round number. Okay. One more. One um, more. One more. So we've got respect, empathy, growth, and I can't remember the fourth one either. Compassion. Compassion. There we go. So good at this. (laughs) So we need a fifth one. And what do you think it was? I I learned so many lessons. It's very difficult for me to sift through and figure out which are the core lessons, I think, especially because they, like we were saying, they're all interconnected. Mm. I would like, because I would say perspective is the most important one because understanding who you are and who other people are and how the world is around you gives you, if you really, really get it, automatically gives you respect and compassion and empathy. Uh, or, I mean, compassion in particular comes from empathy all of the time. Um, and the more you understand people, not just on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level as well, the more moral a person you have to become. You know, there's a big question about, you know, I, I have a lot of young friends. Young friends in particular are against the system. Uh, in this case, capitalism, in specifically venture capitalism, right? They don't like it. They don't like the system, mainly because we're not really benefiting from it because we're not of the, you know, we haven't been involved in the system long enough to get anything out of it yet. So we're all kind of, we're, we're, we're waiting. But, you know, so um, all of my friends really, really don't like the way the system is is set up. And a lot of them ask themselves, you know, how can people like, for instance, Jeff Bezos, who was until recently the richest man in the world with, with Amazon, how can he justify having so much money that he doesn't know what to do with it, as he was famously quoted in an interview, um, while his workers don't get bathroom breaks or, you know, healthcare or dental or things like that, you know, wouldn't the right thing be to set up a company that can make you, you know, not necessarily financially wealthy, but certainly wealthy in terms of of what you can do whilst also helping other people? To which the answer is, I don't think Jeff Bezos really thinks about moral quandaries. I don't think he thinks about other people. He just thinks about his world and what he sees. But the wider your view is, the more of a long-distance understanding you have, I think, the more you hone yourself as a moral individual. So I think perspective, for me, is the most important. It might be different for the others. You should do this conversation with the others. I should do, actually, yeah. Mm. They'd all have a different They'd all have a different list. They would. <laughs> they would, yeah. yeah. So that, But that was in the second. You said perspective in the second. 
Yeah, well, I think we, we mentioned respect last time, so I brought respect up first. Um, um, because you were big on respect. And it was more one of the more obvious lessons as well. The, the, the big one, the other big one for me that we haven't even touched on is working things out for yourself. Yes, uh, self-sufficiency. I was going to say independence, but that's the wrong. It's kind of not word. independence. It like it covers independence. It covers determination, and uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? It's sticking at something. It covers all those things. But it, my big thing was think about it and work it out for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Switch your brain on. In the more recent years, that's turned into, uh, can you look this question up? And if so, why are you bothering me with it? <laughs> there, was, and there was a really keen, and, and where I was coming from with that was because when I was at school, I was convinced I was no good at maths because I could not remember formulae and all the little anagrams that people used to use to remember mm. stuff I was just like God, no, I can't do it mm. and at the time when I was at school when I did my O levels my year 10 exams I could literally remember nothing so when I got the exam paper back I'd only just scraped through I'd got a C and the teacher said to me you've got every single question right but because you didn't do the work in the way that they wanted you to, they marked you right down. But you actually worked everything out from first principles. Yeah. <laughs> but I was convinced I was no good at maths and then went on to do a degree in construction, still convinced I was no good at maths. Mm -hmm. And so when I had kids and I realised that, no, I just, I need to be able to visualise how to build something or how it looks in reality to, to work out the mathematical, physical, chemical formula, whatever. I can work it out, but I have to do it my way. I cannot do it the way that it's been taught. So for me, it was crucial to teach you lot how to work things out for yourself. So you're not reliant on a textbook that tells you that this is the way to do it. It's like, no, 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 sit there, work it out. Work it out. Yeah. So um, that's actually really important for me. Yeah, I think I would I would file it under responsibility, which is often kind of taken as, as ownership. Oh, um, ownership is a big thing. Take responsibility yeah. and ownership. Yeah. And and I think that's that's the thing, not necessarily of anything other than yourself. You know, you have the privilege of existing and we're all intelligent. Um, sometimes annoyingly so. Yeah. <laughs> the kinds of, of negotiations that we would go through on a weekly basis about movies would make the UN faint, I'm sure. Like we, we were precocious kids. And, I, you know, kids in general, I work with kids. Kids are a lot more intelligent than people kind of assume they are. They're just, they've got shutters on. <laughs> That's the problem. They've only got like a really narrow view of the world but they are quite intelligent and that responsibility that message of you can look after yourself more fully and effectively than anyone else can you should look after yourself and not assume that someone else is going to because I was going to say no one else is going to look after you you need to look after yourself and I was like that's a bit harsh 
I'm going to rephrase that. <laughs> but that was that was what the lesson was. We have the responsibility of being people and not just animals, not just, just functions, not just a job, not just going to class, not just a, a social strata. We exist as a name. I think therefore I am. And we need to choose every moment what we do. But it's not just about you either. If you're thinking, you're thinking for everybody as well as yourself. So it was always, it was never just about you. This was always about you and your contribution to the world. Yes. Yes. You don't exist in a vacuum. No. Um, So you've got to think things through because that's how you can best contribute to the world. If you don't, you're not contributing. Okay. The contribution to the world one didn't sink as deeply into me, I have to say. You're an actor, Ryan. I mean, that's true. But acting is a reflection of the world, not an addition to it. You're a writer. (laughs) Okay. An artist. (laughs) All right, fair enough. Look, I'm not saying that it wasn't effective. It's just probably gone subliminal because I don't specifically remember that lesson. But you would take on response. If something happened, if there was an accident, you'd think your way through it and you'd do what you needed to do in order to move things forward. And it might not be that you sorted everything out, but you'd observe it, see what needed doing, and then Mm -hmm. get it done. It's that kind of thinking through. So it's not just about you. Yes. I think the, the message I would word it that I got was um, the measure of a person is their contribution to the world. That's uh, definitely the message I got um, somewhere along the line, which, which translates as, you know, you, you need to, to contribute. And in order to contribute, you need to be responsible for yourself, for who you are as a person and what you can do. I think you were, you were big on us learning how to learn. Oh, Pro yeah. tip for parents, just the best thing you can teach your kids is how to learn. Kids will avoid it. They will fight it tooth and nail. I only really, really learned in university because schools do not teach you that. Don't teach you that. Teach you alphabets. Like, for instance, what you were saying about maths, yeah, having flashbacks, right? Year 12 maths, I struggled. I really, really struggled. Um, we were doing calculus. And everyone hates calculus. But I was all okay with maths until that point. Honestly, the biggest problem I had with maths was not reading the goddamn question. You'll know this one. <laughs> I'm actually quite good at maths. Never struggled with quadratics, never struggled with algebra. Pretty great at it. And then calculus comes along and I have a hissy fit. And I got into university and did biostatistics, which is, if, if you hate calculus, biostatistics is, is the monster under the bed, right? It's, it's awful. <laughs> it's terrible. I hate it. But suddenly they were showing us how the data interacts in the real world in graphs. And I was like, I get it. I get you. I understand that now. All I needed to do was understand it on a graphical level. I don't understand these symbols. Like I just don't get where they fit into one another. It's just just gibberish. I might as well be reading German. I don't know what's going on. Seeing it as a graph, you're like, okay, I see proportional differences here. I understand where all these different letters mean. Gotcha. I understand that. Teach children how to learn. It's important. It is. And on that note, <laughs> we better get going because we've been talking yes. for an hour. Yes, we have. Apologies. Not really. I'm not really sorry, but no, not at all. For appearance's sake, sure. Terribly sorry. That's the actor in you, isn't it? <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks, dude. You're very, very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have? See you next week.